All right, good morning. Well, um, some of you might have seen the email or uh, on the website. Uh, today, of course, January 31st, and it's a fifth Sunday. And I got to thinking about that old tradition a lot of churches have had where on a fifth Sunday you have like a potluck uh, luncheon. Well, of course, because of COVID, we're not doing the potluck luncheon. But I got to thinking about a potluck sermon, okay? I actually even thought about potluck music, but uh, Don wouldn't let me do that. Um, The very nature of potluck is you don't know for sure what you're going to get, okay? I never will forget, I was pastoring a very small church out in West Texas, and we had a potluck meal, and truthfully, nearly every single person brought a green bean casserole. It, it was so bad, we, we had a one-year moratorium on green bean, green bean casserole, okay? Because that was it. It was all, it was, yeah. So you never know, right? And uh, so we thought we would kind of do it this way. We're going to do some uh, questions and answers. And uh, then I'm going to do a, a short little homily to kind of bat clean up, you might say. And uh, so we've been soliciting questions on the Internet this week. Uh, we're going to do a few of them. We don't have time to do all of them. And uh, I hope I can try to answer some of those uh, on the Internet uh, this coming week. Uh, but it's been fun and it's been interesting. You have this story that John just read that uh, is this unclean spirit uh, that is in the synagogue. And someone emailed me and said, is this, is this an exorcism? Is Jesus an exorcist? Yes, yes, he is. Uh, and yes, that's basically what this is that's going on. Sort of defies your sort of stereotypical understanding of, of sweet Jesus and uh, also uh, defies that kind of Hollywood understanding of what an exorcism is. It's so easy to pass over things. You know, these two are yelling at each other. Jesus and the unclean spirit are yelling at each other. You don't really think about Jesus in that way, but... That's what's going on. And so um, what's also interesting to me is that at least in this story, the man with the unclean spirit, the story really doesn't seem interested in him in particular. You don't know if he's a man of faith or not or who he is, not his name. You don't get any of that, just that he's this unclean spirit in him and Jesus confronts him. What you do get is a lot about authority. Uh, this teaching with authority, this power with authority. And so that's really kind of our first question. Uh, what prepared Jesus to speak with authority? I guess earlier I, I didn't think about this quite right. What prepared Jesus to speak uh, with authority? Jackie, you talked about that. But then I think I also talked a little bit about how. What? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll do both so that you don't have to. <laughs> I'll answer this question thoroughly. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, what, well uh, what I think, what I think prepared Jesus. Um, one of the things that really prepared Jesus for this moment is we know that uh, his Jesus ministry started when he was about thirty, 
You know, we're kind of, we have this idea of ambition where if someone shows even a spark of promise, I mean, we get them on the fast track, get them into the best schools, get them into the biggest city, get them into the thick of it. But Jesus stayed in his small town until he was about 30. And um, I think among other things, among loving those people, humbly living with them, uh, Jesus knew his Bible. I mean, we know that from just how often he always returned to God's word. When you cut Jesus, he bled scripture, right? Jesus is on the cross in the midst of torture, and he quotes Psalm 22. He is just so full of God's word that that's his, that's his natural response to, uh, to joy, to hardship, and everything in between. So the second part of this, so George doesn't have to answer it, is what, okay, so that's, I think that's what prepared Jesus, but what authorized Jesus? There you go. Right? What authorized him in the first place? And as we know from the text, he's unique. He is the Holy One of God. He is chosen. He is, he is God with us. And he has also just been baptized. And God reaffirms that as the Holy Spirit descends on him. God reaffirms that and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's conferring the authority that Jesus needs. And what uh, George will get into it later that uh, we're also, later, we're also authorized in, right. in our way as well. But so, so maybe the Christmas story is just that. It's an attempt to explain why Jesus has a very unique and particular authority. The virgin birth, uh, the baptism is a, up until that, is a unique baptism where the Holy Spirit comes and you hear this voice from God. Maybe the time in the wilderness is preparation, certainly. Uh, the testimony of John the Baptist, I think all these things are kind of leading up to uh, uh, tell you the unique authority that Jesus is giving, would you say? Mm -hmm. I think. Sure. So then this unclean spirit, which you encounter that uh, throughout the Gospels, uh, sometimes there's similar stories where it just says demonic, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the guy in the, the gar in the, the, across the lake in the Gerasenes, Okay, Chandler, what do you what do you tell us something about this unclean spirit? What do you think that is, or what do they think the Bible thinks that is? Well, I'm a modern human, so whenever I encounter something I'm not really familiar with, such as impure spirits, um, I go to try and figure out what do they actually mean. So in that regard, I'm a Greek geek. So. Uh, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that it was written in a language called Koine Greek, which is not fancy Greek. It's more of the common tongue of Greek. So there's a couple translation variants and et cetera. And so I looked up the word. What is an unclean or impure spirit, as it said in the text? And the word is akathardos, which literally translates to um, impure, foul, dirty. We, and the root word for that is, uh, I have to remember to look this up, is kathyria, which means to cleanse. So the way to understand what this thing is, is to understand that it is something that is not supposed to be in that space. It is something that needs purification. We get our word catharsis from this Greek word, and that basically the definition of catharsis is purification for the means of renewal. 
And I love that definition. Because typically when we talk about purifying something or purity, we do it for purity's sake. We want something clean so that it's clean. But this definition is referring to the reason why this man or this spirit needs to be cleansed is for its own renewal, for its own growth, for its own movement away from its foulness towards cleanliness. It's a much kinder way of understanding uh, this impure spirit, not so much as just the adversary like we think of with Satan, but this is a person who is in pain and needs help and is, is defying Jesus in his pain. And so Jesus confronting this man, it's not so much this uh, screaming, shouting match, which it is, but it's for the sake of renewal, which is very odd. And you really don't get that unless uh, the intricacies of the word, acatharsis, kind of come out. So I shared this at the earlier service. Um, Someone sent me an email and said, can you name an example of an unclean spirit today? And I said, yes, Congress. Which, (laughs) yeah. They said, which party? I said, oh no, I'm an inclusive kind of person. Everybody, right? All fall fall short of the glory of God, right? Um, So... But more seriously, um, I don't know that evil is an exact synonym in this exact story for unclean, but definitely Jesus is encountering evil in his ministry. And so maybe a way to cut to the chase is just to say, is there evil in the world? And... um, I think 20 years ago, people would have said, oh, it's exceptional, like, say, the Holocaust. But now I think most people would just say, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's real uh, without getting into splitting hairs over what that is exactly. Um, so this unclean spirit, it's interesting. Uh, he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Um, the, the congregation's not sure who Jesus is, but the unclean spirit is. And so how did this unclean spirit know that he was the Holy One of God? Jackie? Um, well, one thing that, that Don brought up you know, this week when we were talking about the scripture is that uh, Jesus teaches as one with authority, teaches like like no other. And who knows uh, if this unclean spirit had been in the sanctuary before without feeling threatened <laughs> or if or or if he uh, just showed up this time or what, but this this unclean spirit reacts violently to Jesus' presence and Jesus' teaching. Um, and I think that that's the other part of the question is how do we know he's the Holy One of God. And one of the ways that we know is the response to him. You know, if you look throughout scripture, um, people don't really have a lukewarm response to Jesus. Nobody in scripture goes, well, how nice. (laughs) He's just saying, be nice to each other. It's, they either lay down their lives for him or they try to kill him. Um, And I think that's kind of uh, say whatever you will about this unclean spirit. They've got one thing right. 
This is the Holy One of God, and there is a violent reaction against his authority in that moment. I was saying earlier that you know, if, if you're in leadership, it's very dangerous to say that any pushback is because I've been pure, pure and committed to the truth. That's not exactly right. But, but the other way around, when you do stand uh, firmly on your principle, when you do stand firmly in the truth, there will be, there will be pushback. Hmm. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Well, we were talking earlier about fruits. You know, how do you measure fruits? Um, I think just everything Jesus is about, it's about setting people free. And, uh, healing, which is setting people free. You know, whatever whatever healing is going on, that's the gospel. Um, and then that's Paul's argument later, I think. If, mm -hmm. this, if this is creating bondage, you're going down the wrong uh, path. Uh, if, if this is creating freedom... Uh, grace, love, then th this is the work of God. Um, it's interesting to me that this unclean spirit is in the congregation and no one's shocked that this unclean spirit is in the congregation. They're shocked that somebody does anything about it. And then they're not sure what that means. I said, what is this? What is this? It's just fascinating to me. Jesus messed with what our unclean this? spirit. Yeah. <laughs> He's been here forever. Oh, my gosh. Um, so someone asked uh, this. Why, why was it important to remove an evil spirit to prove Jesus's, quote, power, unquote, uh, instead of having Jesus perform a work of extreme love? Chandler? Well, we didn't do this last time, but... Let me pose a question to that question. If Jesus is a healer, as we read through the scriptures, why does he receive pushback for healing? Healing in and of itself is a good thing, right? When you go to the doctor, you praise the doctor for healing you. You don't get mad when he actually does his job. So why do we see Jesus as he does these miracles of healing, not only this man, but the paralytic in chapter 2, the bleeding woman in Mark 5, and so on through the rest of Mark, we see that he, the opposition that Jackie was talking about grows and grows. Why is that? Shouldn't healing always be a good thing? Why does it receive opposition? And so, in answering that question that we were presented with, um, it has to do something beyond just the body. And it has to deal with the social. It has to deal with how we are in community with one another. So the question that was asked was, um, why is it important to remove an evil spirit to prove Jesus' power instead of having Jesus perform a work of love? Well, that kind of phrases Jesus as this sort of either-or thing. He's either doing powerful acts um, that are kind of getting people mad, or he's doing loving acts. Right? So think... Jesus flipping the tables at the temple. That's a very classic text where people bring it up and say, Jesus is pretty mad there. That's not love. That's not the Jesus I know. I only know the Jesus of healing and compassion. But let's reframe it in terms of that other question, which is, why did the healing piss people off too? Sorry, but. <laughs> shouldn't have said that, but. Improv. Why? We'll edit that out. Why did the healing upset people? It is because of what the healing did to the person. 
This exorcism that Jesus performed is, in fact, an act of love in power. Because at the time, uh, people who were seen as ill, mentally unsound, disabled, think the paralytic later in chapter 2, so on, these are people that are not only bodily harmed, but socio and economically harmed as well. The Palestinians at this time were under the thumb of Roman authority. And the way that they made their wages usually was by labor. If you are ill or disabled or temporarily out of work, your livelihood is gone. And so these people are ostracized not only bodily, but socio, socially and economically. They are seen as less than. They are seen as outsiders. And yet Jesus chooses them and says, you are the person that I will bring back from the brink. You are the person who is on the outside. I will bring you back and make you the source. I will show you that you can be the center of miracles. If that's not love, I'm not sure what is. I was thinking about that since, since the first service, that I think it was uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu who remarked on the differences between uh, helping someone out of a river who's drowning in a river, which is a, a worthy thing to do, um, there's a difference between that and asking why do people keep falling in the river? <laughs> We're helping all these people out of the river. Let's go upstream and see what the heck is going on. But that's the work that really gets you in trouble. Yeah. And so Jesus does these acts of mercy and these acts of kindness, but, he's, but in doing those and in other things, he's pushing on harmful, exploitative economic systems, and he's pushing on the political apparatus. And those are... Those are the things that get him killed. Mm. He keeps pushing. I had a bishop that one time he said, he said, I don't mind getting persecuted, but I do mind getting persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, you do the right thing and you still get persecuted for it. Uh, if I'm the one with the unclean spirit and Jesus comes and sets me free, then that feels like an act of love, mm. right? Uh, love is a verb is the, the old DC talk song. Uh, and particularly Mark. Mark is, Jesus is a man of action. Immediately is Mark's favorite word. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately Jesus does that. Uh, Jackie, I don't think we got to this one. Uh, what does it mean to love someone when that person is destroying themselves and those around them? That's yeah. hard. It's easier to it's easier to answer that question in terms of how we usually respond, which is in an unhealthy way, which is to kind of get tangled up in, you know, we've, we've all either known or been involved in like a codependent thing where I, I need you to need me and I'm going to get involved. And one, another remarkable thing about Jesus to me every time is that he knows exactly where he ends and other people begin. Mm. And so he's able, um, he's able out of that firm foundation to to help people without ever enabling them or 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 encouraging whatever's going on with their mess i think i I think you brought it up in the first service but not quite this service that um that there's jesus responds differently and sometimes it seems loving and sometimes it seems firm uh no greater example for me than when um when lazarus dies 
and Jesus goes and he's, he, his sisters, Lazarus' sisters both confront him. And Martha says, um, or Mary says, I wish you had gotten here sooner. My brother would have survived. And Jesus, Jesus wept. If you had gotten here That's a sooner, guilting, guilting. yeah, she's guilting him. If you had gotten here sooner, my brother would have survived. And Jesus wept. And Martha says she accosts him too, and she says the exact same thing. She says, "If you had gotten here sooner, my brother would have survived." And Jesus says, "I am the resurrection." <laughs> you know, to to one person he gives kind of this this response of tenderness, and to another he just firmly declares who he is, and. I think he gives them exactly what they need. It's mm. because he's perfect. <laughs> it's because he's not, um, he's, he's not help, he doesn't help, he doesn't ever help us destroy ourselves <laughs> mm. in, in the sense of, of our own self-destructive things. He knows exactly what we need to, to pull us out of that harm without ever getting involved in the harmful systems that, that we've gotten mired in. Uh, so that's remarkable. I don't quite know how he does it, but I always, I'm always impressed when he does. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, I'm going to share a few more uh, thoughts here about this particular scripture, and I'm going to start out talking about my uh, poor sainted mother, I guess. <laughs> um, in thinking about this scripture, uh, I got to thinking about. Uh, my parents, and especially my mother, and how they raised me, um, which was to to be cautious in a certain way, to 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 not take big risk in a certain way, uh, or at least that's the way my mother tried to raise me. Um, don't you know? Just just you know, do what you need to do, but don't take any just really big risky chances that might get you hurt. You know, as far as possible, you need to just basically mind your own business, and above all, um, don't embarrass the family, okay? It was kind of the message I felt like I was getting, um, although I heard that directly, so I don't think it's just my feelings. Um, but, the, I, you know, and I, I say that with all love and kindness. I, I had a great mom, and I know, I know she's just trying to protect her son, uh, from getting hurt. Uh, she's just trying to protect me from all the bad that is in the world. And, and don't get me wrong, my parents weren't hiding from the world. They were, they were very engaged with the world. They, they were very active in church. Uh, they were very active in civic groups and service organizations. They were teachers. My dad was a scoutmaster. Uh, very much a big part of their life was helping the world to be a better place um, but there was a limit you help the world be a better place but but don't go so far out that it's really going to cost you and you really could get hurt I mean for example you you can believe in the principle of civil rights and you might donate money to a civil rights group but don't go down to that demonstration because you're going to get tagged and labeled and hurt, and you're not going to change anything, right? Uh, you can believe in the idea of racial equality, um, but do not date girls of other ethnic groups or races. You're just going to get hurt. You're not going to change anything, and you're going to embarrass the family, okay? So um, God bless my mother, 
And from time to time, I did things that worried her and irritated her and challenged her because I just wasn't quite wired that away. Uh, most of the time, I just didn't tell her what I was doing, okay? Um, and so it was interesting to me and ironic that when I told my mother I was going into the ministry, she basically, uh, it gave her some relief because she thought I was going into this safe, protected kind of profession. And it sounds like it, right? Church work, that, that's safe, right? That's this safe place to live out your life. And so I never really told my mother what it was really like. Um, I, I, maybe I should have, but I just never told her what I kind of wanted to tell her, which was, Mom, my life was safe until I went into the ministry, okay? It wasn't until I went into the ministry that I found myself sitting in a jail cell giving communion to a guy that had murdered his wife. It wasn't until I was in ministry that I was doing worship service for women who were in a halfway house and transitioning out of prison. It wasn't until I was in ministry that I began to try to help women who were in the throes of domestic violence. It wasn't until I was in the ministry that I was before judges and district attorneys pleading for leniency for people I was trying to help. It wasn't until I went into the ministry I found myself working in a hospital where there were weekly bomb threats, visiting AIDS patients, working with the homeless, etc., etc., etc. It never felt that safe in certain times. But on the other hand, she was right at times. Uh, maybe even a majority of the time, uh, quite often it feels like the church is kind of a bubble, kind of this little safe cocoon, uh, this place where I'm surrounded by love and affection and support, and, and that's good. That's okay. The, the church should feel like a sanctuary of protection and love and support. It should feel that way but maybe just not all the time. If that's the only thing we're doing, maybe we need to think about that, just being in a safe place. Jesus is teaching in a church of sorts, a synagogue, and there in the congregation, as we've been talking about, is this man with an unclean spirit who confronts Jesus. Jesus likewise confronts this unclean spirit, an evil spirit, we might say, and he cast it out. It says that Jesus had authority and power to cast out this unclean spirit. Now, as challenging and as somewhat perplexing as that is to post-enlightenment modern people, consider if the opposite were true. What if there was an evil spirit in the church and Jesus couldn't cast it out? What if there was an unclean spirit and Jesus just chose not to do anything about it? What if Jesus doesn't have the authority or the power to deal with the evil in the world? What kind of wimpy, impotent Messiah 
would that be? And if the church can't do anything about the state of the world, what kind of religion are we? At the end of the day, are we just about being safe? Or are we being called to something more? But when confronted with evil, Jesus does have the authority. And he does have the power. And he uses it to cast out the evil. Say amen. Amen. Jesus has the power and the authority to cast out the evil in the world. Thank you, Jesus. But then here's where it really gets um, challenging. Jesus has the authority and the power to cast out the evil. And then after the resurrection, he gives the church that same authority and power and gives them the mission to go and to do the very thing that he's been doing. The church has the authority and the power to confront and defeat the evil of this world. That doesn't sound too safe, does it? When the evil spirit starts yelling at Jesus, it says something it says something like, what do you have to do with us? It's, it's an idiom that's a little hard to translate. You might could uh, accurately paraphrase it as something like, why do you interfere with us? Or even mind your own business. Jesus, what business is it of yours to interfere with us? Have you come to destroy us? Yes. And he does. Huh? So that leads to the question. What is the business of the church? What business are we in? And is it our business of confronting evil in the world? Now, I don't know about you, but immediately uh, that begins to open up a minefield of potential missteps. If I start thinking it's my job to decide who's evil and who's not, if I start thinking it's the church's job to decide who's in, who's out, who needs an exorcism and who doesn't, right? That quickly can be a judgmental, self-righteous endeavor as the church has been guilty of over the centuries. So how would you do that? How would you embrace that calling and yet avoid some of those major pitfalls? I'll give you what I think is a great example. Kairos prison ministry. Kairos goes into a prison, and I think you could easily argue that there are some unclean spirits in a, in a penitentiary. That maybe there is even evil itself that has become flesh in the world. Kairos goes into this prison of unclean spirits and says, we brought you some homemade cookies, which is ingenious, really. Somebody hands you a homemade cookie, your defense shields go down, okay? It's really hard to keep those up when someone gives you a cookie. Kairos goes into that place and says, we're not here to condemn you. We simply want to share with you a way of life that might just bless you as opposed to a way of life that might easily destroy you. 
Christ goes into that place and says, we're not a hit and run ministry. You need our friendship. We will be there for you as long as we can be there for you. Kairos goes in to a place of uncleanliness and says, can we pray for you? And you'd be surprised how often that blows those kinds of people away. Because so many of them, no one has ever offered to pray for them. Kairos goes in and says, we're here for you and we don't need anything back from you. I remember years ago, I was briefly involved with a ministry that went into uh, an institution that was basically uh, 18 and 19 year olds who had committed such terrible crimes. They were transitioning from juvenile prison to regular adult prison. And I remember there was this one guy, he's just very resistant, very resistant. And finally he says, uh, how much are they paying you to do this? I said, nothing. He said, they're not paying you? He said, what about all these other people? Are, are they getting paid? No. He says, then why are you doing this? I, I think, I think, Jesus wants us to do it, so we're doing it. And he was in. After that, he was in. That you would come and do something for somebody and not want anything in return, that was a whole new world for them. Hmm? Kairos, in Kairos, the body of Christ, the church actually thinks it has the authority and the power to confront the evil of this world and to defeat it by changing the human heart. Who else does that? Incarcerated criminals are the business of the church. Doesn't sound safe, but Jesus says, I've come to set the prisoners free. The church actually thinks that domestic violence is the business of the church. And that's why the Ministerial Alliance here has pushed hard on getting a women's shelter built. The church actually thinks that health care for those who can't afford it is the business of the church, not the government, the church. That we're in that business. And so the church helps the Good Samaritan Center get started because you want to talk about being a prisoner, a prisoner of, of poor health. The church actually thinks that feeding and caring for senior citizens is the business of the church. And so that's why the church helped to start the Golden Hub. The church actually thinks that pandemics are the business of the church. And so the Ministerial Alliance here is, has been pushing hard to help find volunteers for the vaccination process. The church actually thinks that addiction is an insidious form of slavery, and that's why most 12-step groups around the country are in churches. Freedom from every kind of bondage is our business. You can debate all you want about the constitutionality of praying in schools, but the church prays over schools. We pray over children. We pray over teachers. We, we give food to children going to school. Our schoolhouse angels love and support teachers. The children of our community 
or our business. And what about politics? Is that the church's business? Well, I say wherever there is anger and hardness of heart, wherever there is destructive condemnation and divisiveness for personal gain, wherever power is misused to abuse, and to, are we going to say nothing? Are we in the business of saying nothing? Or is it our business to consider truth-telling, issues of morality and integrity, compassionate care for those unable to care for themselves, even if all we have to offer is a homemade cookie, a tear shared together, the holy sacrament, our hearts, as unsafe as that feels. The courage to sacrifice for the health and spiritual freedom of others, even when it isn't safe or respectable. Finally, I'll share with you, I, I'm pretty sure I've talked about him before. I have had an uncle. I loved, I loved my uncle. Uh, I experienced him as a, a kind and a good guy. Uh, but in a very subtle way, there was there was a real kind of hardness in his heart. He lived in a little tiny town. There was a little church his wife was so faithful to, but he would not go to that church. He f he felt like they were a bunch of hypocrites. He knew what they were doing on Saturday night. He wasn't going to go down there and be a hypocrite like them and sing those hymns when they were a bunch of sinners. And then he had a conversion experience. His life shattered into pieces. He literally, on his knees, gave himself to Jesus Christ. And there was a powerful but subtle change that came over his heart. Those, those hypocrites he began to see as broken sinners in need of love and grace and forgiveness, just like him, that he wasn't any different and he began to do prison ministry we are given the authority under the cross of forgiveness we are given the authority and power through our humility of remembering that there but for the grace of God go I and if I have received such undeserved love, how can I not share it with the world? That's who we are, church. Amen?